Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. But not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. It's never an easy call with so many problems in the world to know where to direct the money that you donate when you want to help out in this world. But what I can tell you is that when you donate to CAMH, you're saving lives. We know about the opioid crisis. We know about the mental health crisis. They are doing the work. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help us treat addiction and build hope. This episode of Canada Land is brought to you by Douglas, a mattress that is trusted by more than 200,000 Canadians from coast to coast to coast. It's a great mattress at a very reasonable price point. Comes with a 20-year warranty and a great deal for our listeners. Douglas is giving you a free sleep bundle with each mattress purchase. Get the sheets, pillows, mattress, and pillow protectors free with your Douglas purchase today. Visit douglas.ca slash CanadaLand to claim this offer. That is douglas.ca slash CanadaLand. Karen Puglese. Hey, Jesse Brown. My boss. <laughs> kind of my boss. Yeah, when we're over there and I'm publisher, I'm your boss. But in this room and I'm host, you're my boss. I can't wait to boss you around. It's a magical room. <laughs> Today on the show, politics, polls, pronouns, Peterson, and the press. And the disgraced megachurch pastor who's taking the Toronto Star to court and who's winning. Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news. This episode is brought to everybody by Marcus Lawrence, Daniela Pagliaro, Lauren Howard, Patricia Hontar, Andrew Ford, Odin Ehlers, Derek Ivany, and Joel. Hi, this is Joel, a business school professor based in Montreal. I support Canada Land because they offer the type of thorough and thoughtful journalism that has all but disappeared elsewhere. Also, despite all the insults that are hurled his way, I actually like Jesse and look forward to hearing his incisive and articulate commentary each week. Thank you for demonstrating that audience-supported journalism is not only a viable business model, but also a vital one for Canadians. Keep up the good work. Changes announced by the education minister require, among other things, parental consent for children under 16 who want to identify by a different name and pronoun. We do not exclude uh, parents in their child's life. Trans kids in New Brunswick are being told they don't have the right to be their true selves, that they need to ask permission. Well, trans kids need to feel safe, not targeted by politicians. So my message to Justin Trudeau, is butt out and let provinces run schools and let parents raise kids. 
Saskatchewan announced a shift today on sex education and the use of pronouns in schools. The move requires students under 16 to get their parents' permission. Dozens in Saskatoon voicing concern and showing support for the province's LGBTQ2 community. Karen, as Shortcuts listeners heard on a previous episode, New Brunswick changed their policies for safety for LGBTQ students. The change means that it's no longer mandatory for teachers to use the preferred pronouns or names of transgender or non-binary students under the age of 16. And the teachers need to obtain parental consent for any child who wants to change their name at school. And that was followed with similar legislation last Tuesday in Saskatchewan, where Education Minister Dustin Duncan announced new policies around sex ed and the use of pronouns in school throughout the province. Then in Ontario, our education minister said he believes parents must be fully involved if their child chooses to use a different pronoun at school. Conservative leader Pierre Polyev has picked up the issue. It is sweeping the nation. This is a big issue we all have to deal with. And now we have data. We have polling. Mm. We know what the public thinks. And so we've got the polls, then we've got the politicians, and we've got the press because the polls stimulate the politicians. Uh, they go out with the polls, and then the press reports on everything. Angus Reid polling tells us the vast majority say schools should inform parents if children wish to change their pronouns. Yes. Well, the people have spoken. <laughs> I, I, you and I, like, picked apart this poll a little bit because we wanted to know, like, how it was done, how the questions were asked. And I think like asking some good questions. So, I mean, like it's by Angus Reid. And the first thing that I said is, you know, sometimes people commission their polls and sometimes they just do them. So we took a look and it seems that this one was not commissioned. It was just done. The relevance being that we're a bit suspicious of a commissioned poll because it opens the door for push polling where you could kind of like, I'm going to buy a poll. I'm going to phrase the question in such a way that I think I can anticipate the answer and it'll come out looking like data, but really this was essentially manipulating a predetermined result. Well, you know, I okay, so I have like a really good insider story about push-pulls, because when I used to work at Assembly of First Nation, that's exactly what we used to do. So we would phrase a question like, do you believe First Nations children should have the same access to education as other Canadian children? Now, that should be a dead yes. You wouldn't believe that, like, 20% of people actually said no. <laughs> yeah, but you got your strong majority. Like, but we got our strong majority. Like, well, hell yeah, of course they should. And we're asking that instead of should we increase money or funding to First Nations education, which would have gotten a bigger no, which is how you get equal access. Increase the money. We give them enough money already. I say, so the same person We already person give who them millions yes. of dollars. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. So it was meant to get that strong response. And then the second thing is when you sit there and you publish data like it, like that, it becomes a news story. Like just going out and saying it doesn't give the media any reason to publish it. But now there's a new poll out. Yeah. And, and so for all those reasons, so so that was why we wanted to know. But they, they apparently did it on their own. Angus Reid did on their own. And probably on the strength of the movement, you know, now coming into Ontario and these laws being in two provinces and coming into another one. The second question I had was, what well, was it? like a random selection because you can do a poll and you can just ask your friends. Mm -hmm. um, if you go and ask how tall are people in the school, but you only ask the basketball team, you're going to get a biased sample. And so what you want is a random sample, which means, you know, like if you were doing a lottery and you put a whole bunch of balls into a bin, everyone has the same chance of getting selected, which mathematically gives you you know, like a, a more realistic view of the whole. A another way to put it is if you're making soup and you want to see how salty it is, you can take a teaspoon 
You don't have to drink all of the soup. It's but you, what you're looking out for is gerrymandering, basically. If, yeah. you, if you don't do a random sample, then you can target certain sample groups that you suspect are going to go one way or the other. Exactly. One of the things that has happened in polling since people stopped having landlines is that polling went through a crisis because they had a methodology that suddenly didn't work anymore. They weren't able to really tie people to regions. They weren't really able to get access to people in the way that they used to. So it it messed up their math, and we had a few years of really bad polls uh, around elections that you might remember. So how are they doing it now? It, It seems that they have a group that signs up that says, well, we're willing to answer polls, right? So they've gotten one. It's supposed to be random. It's supposed to be representative. But it's not really random in the sense that the type of person who's willing to sign up for a poll is probably different than your regular person. Like, these are people who have strong opinions. So I think that there would still be some bias. And time on their hands. You know, <laughs> so, this was a, you know, so this was not a commission poll. And uh, I don't think that it was a poll that was uh, specifically targeted at, you know, this population or that. But one thing that raised an eyebrow was that it is this Angus Reid online polling. So, th- you know, these are people who sign up to answer polls so that either they've got a lot of opinions they want to share, they've got a lot of time on their hands, or they like, I don't know, whatever gift cards they get in response. I don't think that's the biggest problem with this poll. I think that, that the biggest problem with this poll is the question that was asked. Mm-hmm which as we uh, previously discussed is I think the biggest determiner of what the answer is. So it sounds like fairly straightforward. The question was, which policy do you prefer? Not sure, can't say, or parents should neither be informed nor have a say. It's up to the child. Or parents must be informed if their child wants to identify differently. Or parents must be informed and give consent for this change. So I am not shocked that a strong majority of people chose either parents must be informed or they must be informed and give consent because of the way that the question was phrased. I think you could just have easily have asked a different question, and it might be the more germane question. You could have asked, if vulnerable children confide in a teacher Mm -hmm. and explicitly ask that the information not be shared with their parents, should the school be forced to tell the parents, which is actually what's happening yeah. in, in, in these circumstances. And then I think the exact same people who said the parents have a right to know would say, well, no, if this kid is vulnerable and they're asking for, to, to, you know, there's all kinds of reasons why a student might want to speak to a teacher in confidence and not have the parents know about parents it. Parents' right to know versus child's right to privacy is, I think, what you're getting about. The question asks about the parents' right to know you're suggesting it could have asked and maybe should have asked about the child's right to privacy. Well, and I think that most reasonable people would say that children have a right to privacy in certain circumstances, but not others. If it's about their drug use, maybe the parents need to know. If it's about, don't tell my parents, but I'm having an issue with how I'm identifying and I need somebody to talk to. Yeah, you don't tell the, like the, the kid is telling you that this could have consequences for them at home. So I do think that this is a leading question that leads to a predetermined answer or an answer that we could reasonably say, like, we know where this is going to go. And then everything else just follows. Like, you know what the poll is going to say, and you know that Pierre Polyev is going to pick that up and be like, see, (laughs) Canada is with me, Justin Trudeau, butt out. And then, you know, headlines follow. Here's a tweet from Mel Wood, senior editor at Extra Magazine, a uh, former and I hope future guest on this show. Here's what Mel Wood said. We need to call out this parental rights conversation happening in New Brunswick, Saskatchewan, Ontario, and likely more provinces for what it is, a dangerous anti-trans dog whistle. Don't think that Canada is different from the U.S. 
our politicians attack trans youth here too. Now, when we get to the press, I don't think the press has necessarily acted terribly, at least in the case of the Toronto Star. You would hope that the press would provide some of the context that we're trying to provide here, and I think the Star did. Uh, gender identity pronouns in schools, Polyev and others say leave it to the parents. Parents say they want to know. Here's what experts say. So without actually the Star weighing in editorially, they're like, well, here, here are experts on child safety telling you that maybe there's a reason to think about this differently. I think that's that's right. That's, you know, because it, it's fairly neutral, but it is giving you like there, there's another part of this that you need to hear. Mm-hmm. I kind of want to like wipe the chalkboard clean and look at this in a different way, which is like, this is about narratives to me. And there is a narrative. There's a story that is being told. Oh, yeah. It's a story that there is a radical woke agenda mm-hmm. that teachers are in on and a part yes. of. And that this radical woke agenda has a target on your kid. I, I'm so glad you went there. That's exactly what I think, too. They're, they're trying to cut parents out of the deal, and they're trying to essentially brainwash kids into their weird gender ideas. And if you present a story that way, and if you constantly tell everybody, because that's a narrative that is going to have emotional reactions from, like, a lot of people, any parent for sure— is going to respond to that narrative. If that's true, everybody needs to be very concerned and probably get very angry if you think that it's true that that, that there's this agenda and 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 they're conspiring to cut you out of your like so personal like your 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 right to raise your own child. That is one narrative that like you know is playing far and wide, and I think it's forcing people to to think they have to choose a side. Like oh, do you tell the kid? Do you tell the parents or not tell the parents? But there's like another narrative that I don't think even matters to like the vast majority of people, but the people it does matter to, it matters a great deal, which is like for the very small relatively number of people, kids Mm -hmm. who are experiencing these issues, you don't want to be like a football in this game. Like there's a narrative that is just about you and your own identity and your own struggles and, and your search for supports. And I think that like, Rather than kind of like phrase everything as like, which side are you on of this divisive debate? <laughs> there is a role for us to just say like, this is bullshit. This is not real. It's not a real, the story is not real. The, the story is not real. You know, but the problem is it's having real consequences. So, I mean, look, look, all kids go through trying to figure out their identity. They try to figure out, you know, you know if they're funny or if they're smart. And yeah, f- trying to figure out their gender and their sexuality is part of that. It always has been. Now they can use words and express themselves. And I think what you're saying about this this narrative, uh, I called it the rainbow scare, and I thought I had invented this, but I Googled it and CNN beat me to it. I believe it is coming up from the U.S., and not only do I believe it, as I was kind of looking around, there was a, a great article in uh, Wired called The U.S. is Exporting Anti-LGBTQ Hate Crime that links conspiracies and these kind of alt-right theories, you know, these rumors that go around on the internet about there's a school that is forcing young men to dress as women. Like, none of these things are true. But it's trying to scare parents into the fact that schools are doing something to not just enable this, but to actually encourage it. It, It's to force it on kids. That's what the rumor is, that the teachers are somehow forcing kids who aren't trans to become trans. That is the rainbow scare that they're having. It was covered last year, but undercovered, that there were a bunch of people who were anti-diversity, anti-trans, anti-gay rights, who started trying to run for school boards and infiltrate school boards. 
And there were a few stories about it. It was being tracked by the Canadian Anti-Hate Network. But it kind of like stayed as an understory. And I think that all of this is coming up from like the real backlash against gay and trans people in the U.S. Yeah, I mean, I found out through David Moskrup's Substack that uh, the Freedom Convoy is uh, planning their next move, the new, the new convoy, and the new convoy is called Hashtag Save the Children. Oh, God. So we should all be very, like, whenever you start to kind of mobilize this as, like, we're doing this for the children, won't somebody think of the children, like, be aware. But this is, this is the grand unifying narrative that's going to, like, get the most people activated, angry, and emotional. And we need to be really cautious, like, about the narratives themselves as opposed to just accepting these terms and saying, are you for this new convoy or against it? It's just like, well, is, is, the, is the basis for this even real? I mean, there's no shortage of these issues. The other big news, I think, on the kind of bullshit culture war story front is, like, here's a narrative for you that I think fewer people but still a lot of people are really responding to. The narrative that the powers that be, the establishment, the academy – the universities and even professional groups like uh, psychologist regulators are trying to stymie freedom of expression. That if some psychologist dares to say things that they just believe are true and which might damn well be true, they will try to strip that psychologist <laughs> of his title. And, and, <laughs> I and, wonder who you're talking about. <laughs> and the courts need to, to step in and stop this radical woke agenda of the College of Psychologists. So... This was uh, in the cycle as well, and I think it's a related story, is that at a certain point, reality steps in to, like, assert itself against these narratives. Jordan Peterson, our reporting in 2018, Jonathan Goldsby was the one who broke the story that, like, this guy, when he became famous, started to do things that are not necessarily in keeping with what you would hope a psychologist to do. He started to mm -hmm. publicly talk about one of his former patients in a negative way. And so if you're this guy's former patient and this patient that was our source, she like lost him as her psychologist. And suddenly he's like going uh, and giving speeches about this terrible former patient. And then he goes onto social media and says that like fat women aren't beautiful. Fact. Which is not necessarily something. It's an opinion. I think under free speech you can say that. But it's not really something a psychologist should be saying. And, and making jokes about how his ideological enemies might want to go and commit suicide. Not something that you want. <laughs> if you if your job is to regulate psychologists, it's just reasonable. And then they have pre-existing policies. It's not about you suddenly have a woke agenda. You're like, yeah, we we have rules about what psychologists should say out there because they represent the profession. And they didn't even say, we're asserting our agenda here and we're stripping you of your title of psychologist. They said, go take a social media course. Mm-hmm. Right, because because some of the stuff you're doing is not really in keeping with the profession, and he took them to court over that, and he just lost. So here's reality asserting it's like no, nobody is out to strip you of your freedom of expression. It is well within the college's rights and responsibilities to ask you to go to social media course. But he's been going to town for years now that this is more evidence that freedom of expression is dead in Canada, and like we have to take note of these moments where reality is like no, that was a false narrative from the fucking start. Just like your pronoun thing was a false narrative from the start. Yeah. No, nobody was forcing you to use those. Nobody was taking you to jail if you refused to use people. Like, this is all bullshit. Like the world is dealing with some real problems right now. And these distractions are given way too much attention. And like, it's years before we just got to the bottom line of like, we have institutions, we have the College of Psychologists, we have the courts. We don't need other institutions like Angus Reid kind of confirming and affirming, like the entire country is being divided into this, like, oh my God, what are we going to do about this pronoun privacy issue with this? It's not real. It's bullshit. 
Yeah, and I, I think that was actually, I, I point people to the Wired article. It was so good because it was really pointing out the important role that journalism is trying to play in sorting all of this out and just putting the facts in front of people. This episode is sponsored by BetterHelp. Uh, it's amazing the things that we tell ourselves to talk ourselves out of getting help. Anybody who's actually gotten help knows that the process of getting things off your chest, of taking your stressors, your problems, and just like not letting them be bottled up, working through just conveying them to somebody, half of the battle is just doing that. You unburden yourself. And you know what? If you have a real mental health professional, no, they don't have magic bullets or magic words that make it all go away. But often they can help you see things a little bit differently and guide you to strategies or tools or to a new perspective that actually does help. As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. We hear a lot about the opioid crisis. We talk a lot about the mental health crisis. These are serious problems. These problems affect us all. They've affected my life and my community. They're not intractable problems. I don't know what's going to solve them on a policy level, but day-to-day -day helping people, that's what CAMH does. They do it on the ground when people need help, and they do it through research. The team at CAMH gave our team a tour of their facilities, and we were really just blown away by the incredible, heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca slash CanadaLand to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope. Karen. Yes. Familiar as you are with the format of this program, you know that it is our responsibility and honor to duly note stories that otherwise might go unnoted. Yes. What do you got for us? Okay, so this is actually, to me, like kind of a good news story about news stories. So I just wanted to draw people's attention to an investigation that was published in the Winnipeg Free Press. It's, it's a four-parter, and I've just gotten through the first part of it. And it's by Marsha McLeod. So essentially what she's looking at is police have used lethal force 29 times in Manitoba since 2003. That includes Winnipeg Police Services, a First Nations Police Service, and the RCMP. And what she's asking is taking a look at um, the circumstances surrounding it, the investigations of deadly force, and inquiries into it to find out what exactly comes of inquiries once these circumstances are investigated and if anything actually changes. Cynics will not be disappointed. But I, the real thing about it is just, like, to see the Winnipeg Free Press take on, like, a real deep dive like this. It is a deep dive into data journalism, but doesn't read like data journalism. It's incredibly well-written and just a fantastic job. And at a point where we're losing investigative journalism across Canada— it's just sweet, sweet, sweet to see such good work. All right. This is in the Winnipeg Free Press. It's called Oversight Misfiring. Duly noted. I would like to duly note that about a month ago, Sylvia Stead, 
the public editor of the Globe and Mail since 2012, quietly shuffled off into retirement. Looking back at the tenure of Sylvia Stead as the public editor of the Globe and Mail, it was kind of a debacle from the start. Like, very shortly after she became public editor, the Margaret Wente plagiarism scandal took place. Sylvia Stead worked diligently to minimize it, hush it up, and, la- and later uh, admitted that she mishandled this after it became uh, a big scandal, not because she was doing what the public editor is supposed to do, which is advocate for the readers of the Globe and Mail, but because, and this is maybe not her fault, the Globe and Mail set up the public editor's mandate very differently than the ombudsperson or public editor at like pretty much any other news organization. The idea is they're supposed to be independent of the newsroom. Sylvia Stead reported to the editor-in-chief. Hmm. And the way that this played out was consistent with her working for the editor-in-chief and the editor-in-chief's interests. So after that, they detached the public editor from the editor-in-chief, and things did not necessarily get better. Here is uh, like a one line of events here. This is Sylvia Stead in 2010, and admittedly before she was public editor, she was an editor of the Globe and Mail. Stephen Marsh wrote a piece, an opinion piece about Rob Ford, in which he stated the shocking, shocking opinion that Rob Ford is fat. (laughs) Um, And he went and did his Stephen Marsh thing and did a cultural analysis of Rob Ford's fatness and how his fatness played into his, I think it was just a totally fine thing to discuss. Goes against Canadian politeness. It goes against Canadian politeness. It makes me uncomfortable. And makes yet, us uncomfortable. And, and, yet, yet, like, and yet I'd read it. Sure. <laughs> I can't uh, believe I missed that. <laughs> well, you missed it because they unpublished it. Oh. Okay. They actually, uh, Marsh lost his column and they, they vanished the piece. And Sylvia Stead wrote the piece, the Ford Fat piece, was taken off the site either late Friday or early Saturday. We are running a number of letters to the editor complaining about the piece tomorrow, and you will see the strong reaction. While we believe strongly in freedom of speech for our writers and our readers, we felt the piece was offensive in its language. It's offensive to call him fat. It's also not what the election should be about. In 2016, as public editor, Sylvia Stead wrote, we're not in the unpublishing business. And this is like actually the way it's supposed to be. The way it's supposed to be is even if that had been an inexcusable column that they wish they never had published, you, you don't remove it because you did publish it. Yep. You did you did that, and that's part of the public record. So if it was wrong, you correct it. If there's letters responding to it, whatever it is, all becomes part of the public record. You don't hide your mistakes. That's not befitting of a, a newspaper. And Sylvia Stead wrote at great length about how we are not in the unpublishing business. One year later. <laughs> The Globe and Mail removed Leah McLaren's breastfeeding column in which she claimed. Oh, uh, I remember this one. In which she claimed to have, without consent from parents or baby, breastfed uh, politician Michael Chong's baby at a party when she was alone with the party. And there was no comment. Canada Land and other media went to Sylvia Stead and said, so what's the deal with this vanished Leah McLaren article? And Sylvia Stead Champion of the reader, uh, conscience, this is what a public editor is supposed to be, conscience of the Globe and Mail, didn't say a damn thing. The new public editor is not the public editor. The new public editor is called the standards editor. Hmm. And I think that's fine to say that this editor is here to enforce the standards of the Globe. Journalistic standards is, yeah, a little different. It's a little bit different than saying that this editor is here for the public. And I think that's a noteworthy change in the Globe and Mail's approach to this that that people should pay attention to in a way that I don't think over the summer of this shift. And I, I Sandra E. Martin is the standards editor. I have every reason to believe that she's a great one at this point. But the shift in language. It's is interesting. It's, it's very interesting. It's something that you might say. Duly noted. 
Karen, our final segment today is about a disgraced pastor who was a bit of a celebrity in the megachurch world. And this is a bigger thing in the States than Canada, but Canada does have its share of megachurches. And this guy, I want you to picture him uh, before you hear him, because without the visuals, like, how would you describe Bruxy KV? What does he look like? He looks kind of like a folk rock starry kind of guy, but an, a middle-aged one, you know, like sort of when they're past their prime. Long hair, old-styled 70s hat. That's very reporterly. I, I would describe him as, uh, he looks like a guy who would sell you counterfeit Hoobastank tickets. <laughs> he looks like the guy at the dispensary who would give you information that you did not request for about a half hour on the difference between resin and rosin. <laughs> he looks a little bit like Comic Shop Away, but if he took up folk music. Comic book guy <laughs> in cargo shorts. I don't even think that's being mean. That's what Brooksy Cavey looks like. And here is what he sounds like back when he was still preaching. I don't just read the book because the book guides me. I read the book to help me get to know the person and he guides me. Christians are not just people of the book. We're people of the person. That's Jesus. And that, that kind of, he comes to us in the form of the Holy Spirit. So I, I, decided, I decided I'd get a tattoo to help me talk about this amazing Jesus. This amazing Jesus. And he goes on to explain that he ultimately decided to get the, a tattoo of uh, the passage in Leviticus where it tells you you can't get tattoos. Yeah. I guess this is like stand-up comedy in the megachurch world. Anyhow, why are we dunking on, like, I, I don't mind speaking negatively about this guy because he is later being disgraced and accused by several of his former congregants, including an underaged member of his church of sexual misconduct, harassment, and or assault. The church itself found in their investigation of this that he was guilty of harassment and misconduct. Well, we're saying guilty, but nothing's been proven in court, but... Yeah, I'm speaking specifically of the investigation mm -hmm. that the church ran, but there are criminal charges for sexual assault that he's now facing, and that takes us to our story today, which is that the complainant who has accused him of sexual assault, who we will not be naming and media has not been naming, but who was named online via social media and piled upon in violation. We can say Alana. That was the pseudonym. The pseudonym is Alana. We're in violation of a court-ordered publication ban. She went to court to ask a judge to compel Facebook, YouTube, and Reddit to disclose the user information, which they did. Where this is at now is the Toronto Star was caught up in a sweep. Bruxy's lawyers are trying to defend him, and they're gathering documents. And what would you do if you were trying to defend this guy against sexual assault claim is you try to discredit the, the people who are accusing him. And one of them spoke to the press. So what do you do? You try to get the Toronto Star's documents mm -hmm. about this accuser. And once you got that, if you get that, then you can compare what she told the star with what she told the court and try to find some minor discrepancies and destroy her credibility based on that. That's my, you know, assumption as to why they want this material. They're trying to, I mean, you know, it's a pretty safe assumption. They're trying to defend their client any way they can. That's their job. But we're supposed to have an independent press. Mm -hmm. And in order for there to be an independent press, the press is not supposed to hand over files about confidential sources to the courts. Toronto Star made an appeal to avoid having to give over these documents. The appeal was not heard. The application was dismissed on July 26, 2023. 
Karen, as a former president of the Canadian Association of Journalists, I know that you're really familiar with these cases. I am aware as a journalist that in Canada, I have to be very careful to never tell a source that I guarantee Mm -hmm. their confidentiality. I can tell them, look, you will be my confidential source. I won't use your name in my reporting, but I, I can't promise them I will never disclose your name because I know that under Canadian law, it is conceivable that I would be forced to give the court not only their name, but all my files on them. Though I get a bit murky about like under what circumstances would I have to do that? And the only case history I'm aware of is the case of Ben McCoo who I know the CAJ fought for him and he ultimately lost, but that was a weird case because the source he was trying to protect, the name of the source was already known. Right. And it felt like more of like standing on principle, trying to not set a bad precedent. This case, well, all right, the source's name was leaked previously, but this one seems to me to speak directly to the, the the precedent that we're most afraid of, which is how the hell is anybody supposed to trust a journalist with a story like a sexual misconduct story if the journalist might be forced to hand that information over to the alleged predator to destroy the credibility of the accuser? Like that completely would, I would say, impinge, maybe destroy our ability to do journalism. I thought Justin Trudeau introduced laws after the Ben McCoo case to protect sources. How is this happening? How is the Toronto Star, like, so far, they're losing? Yeah. The way that I want to talk about this, I was actually just remembering as you were talking to me that the very first time that you interviewed me, the police had seized APTN's tapes. I think that was one of the interests that you had talking to me at that point. And uh, we, we'd gotten the tape back. So journalists are not supposed to be an arm of the law. We uh, go out, we cover protests. We talk to people who want confidentiality in various ways. If if we are just simply turning over tapes to the, the press and to the courts and revealing our confidential sources, nobody's ever going to talk to us. And in fact, it puts us in danger if we look like we're narcs for the cops in some situations. So in order to get a tape, what the police are supposed to do is supposed to go through a very complicated process of getting a production order. So that is thing one. In the Ben Maku case that you mentioned, they did get a production order. And the question there was just fighting over whether or not they should have access to his notes and the stuff behind the scenes. And and the source was dead in that case. The source died, or they believe that they died. They found that out towards the end, and they went back and appealed and said, the source is even dead, and they were still told to turn everything over. Yeah, so even though McCulloss is like, well, you know, you're trying to protect your sources, your source, but your source is both, we know the name, and they're dead. So what are their rights to this protection? The fact that Ben lost that is like, well, I guess I maybe hoped against hope that, like, this isn't necessarily going to impugn our ability to work with sources who are living and trying to protect their names and and their details. Yeah. Ben Naku, this was 2014. His source was a Calgarian who had gone to Syria to join ISIS, and the police initially said, we want to find out where he is, and so we want your notes. They fought it all the way up to the Supreme Court. They lost. Then, even though the source was dead, They forced them to turn over the notes anyway. But what they said in that case was that Ben had never guaranteed the source confidentiality. Mm -hmm. But it was still kind of like a shakeup for journalism because it's very rare. Like, you're right, you can be compelled. 
And one of the cases when I was going through school that was kind of described as in a civil suit, if somebody feels that your source had malice and defamed them, your confidential source, you could face a court order forcing you to reveal that source. Because in the Constitution, all of our freedoms have limits on them. And so you run into these things like, where does the right to a free trial, um, when it comes up to the rights of the free press and they're overlapping, who gets the reasonable limit? In this case, what appears to be happening is you've got somebody who's saying, I need to have this information for a free trial. But what had happened in the meantime that hasn't had a lot of testing yet is the, you referenced it earlier, the Journalist Sources Protection Act, which passed in late 2017. It's not as high as the Constitution. It's just an act. But it gives a little nudge to the court saying, when you're considering press freedom and the limits on it, we've put out this act that gives you a little bit of direction to say press have a little bit more freedom in protecting confidential sources. So I would expect, and I'm not a lawyer, this is a layman journalist thing, but I would expect that this never should have been swept up into the pile in the first place. Mm -hmm. And what it's kind of coming down to is the judge is arguing procedure, and they're saying, wait and let the trial judge decide this. And the star is saying, no, we do not want to hand over these documents to the courts at all, and we're drawing the line in the sand here. Right, because this is not a case where the courts are compelling the star to hand over the files to the accused lawyers directly. No, they never do. They would have to give the court these documents. A judge, as I understand it, would then assess them and see, well, what does the defendant have a right to have and what what, what do they not have a right to have? And from, I, I don't know, from like a judge's, I don't know, there's a legal question here that I'm not qualified to weigh in on. I think the courts are saying like that, let us see this stuff and then we'll be the judge of whether or not this should go or not. And any responsible newsroom would say, no, we don't give this to anybody. Yeah. That infringes on our independence directly. So you want us to basically defer to this higher authority and you'll decide what's right or wrong. But as soon as you cross that line and, and you know, the, the technicalities legally that this is at were kind of beyond our comprehension. We had our as close as we get to a legal expert here is Jonathan Goldsby, and he looked at this and he said, uh, it's highly technical and almost obnoxious. I did call a few lawyers in preparation for this, and I'm usually pretty good at following what lawyers tell me, but my head was spinning. This is very technical. Beyond, and it, it's, yeah. probably, it, it's probably as simple for layman's terms that it's administrative procedure versus an all-out, this is journalism rights, we want a different procedure, we just want it to end now. I think that's what it's coming down to. Yeah, I can't say for sure, but why I feel okay about talking about this is, is that no matter what the process is by which this is happening, if the outcome of this is that in a sexual assault journalistic investigation, a newsroom has to hand over their confidential files about an accuser to the courts, I don't think that's happened before. It's a terrible precedent. It affects every journalist in the country. So this seems to be like a real live precedent-setting case that I, I hope the Toronto Star wins. I hope they're in a position to fight. I think the press is weaker than it's ever been. I, mm-hmm. you know, we used to see consortiums of, of reporters, of news organizations get together and chip in a little bit each for legal battles like this one because they affect everybody. But I do feel like in general, 
our rights are being eroded as we kind of get divided, minimized, and conquered. And you don't see the same level of resource from newsrooms to to try to like uphold these precedents or, or stop these precedents from getting set. Yeah, and it, it like it's kind of a good thing that it happened to the Star and it didn't happen to like a, a much smaller paper because nobody except for the press freedom groups are really getting behind smaller papers when they struggle in these issues anymore, whether it's with the courts or whether it's with, you know, access to First Nations land actions. Like when when it's the smaller papers, like the CAJ has been the only thing getting behind them and CJFE sometimes. And those usually happen like on the, the cheapest level. It's usually a pro bono lawyer that's yeah. representing the press freedom groups, which people don't realize. Press freedom groups in Canada are all almost entirely volunteer organizations. And then the lawyers have to volunteer as well. Yeah, there's like a, a group of media lawyers who, I, who kind of contribute pro bono work to this, and God bless them. Yeah. All right. So this is uh, reporting is being led by uh, Morgan Bachnick of the Toronto Star. The fight is being fought by the Toronto Star. Good luck to them. It, it, it seems to be also, uh, we should mention, a confluence of the rape shield laws with source protection stuff. So it's a really interesting case. We'll be, I guess, reading the Toronto Star to find out where it goes next. Yeah, absolutely. That shortcuts, Karen. Thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me, Jesse. We are on Twitter at Canada Land. I can be emailed about this at jesse at canadaland.com, and I, I read everything you send in. Karen, where can people find you? They can find me here at Karen, with a Y, at canadaland.com. This episode is produced by Aviva Lassard with additional production by Caleb Thompson. Our managing editor is Annette Ajofo. Our editor-in-chief is uh, you, Karen Puglese. Theme music is by so-called syndications by CFUV, 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca. If you value this podcast, support it. We need you to. We rely on listeners like you to pay for our journalism and our analysis. As a supporter, you will get premium access to all of our shows without ads. You'll get early releases. You'll get bonus content. We're putting up more of that than ever. You'll get our exclusive newsletter. You'll get discounts on our merch. You'll get invites and tickets to our live and virtual events. But the reason why people do this more than anything is to become a part of the solution to Canada's journalism crisis and to keep our work free and accessible to everyone. Come join us now. Click on the link in your show notes or go to canadaland.com slash join. You can listen ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Thank you for supporting Canada Land. Hey, I need you to pay close attention to this message. It is not an ad. This is about Canada Land and this is about you. You need to know that the news crisis is about to get a lot worse. You've heard about the layoffs. We're about to have news closures. And it's very likely that we're going to be seeing the defunding of the CBC. Where are you going to get your information from? What can you do about this? You can support Canada Land. We need you to. And so for this month and this month only, you can become a Canada Land supporter and get everything our supporters get for just $2 a month. That is an almost 80% discount. The clock is ticking on this. It disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to canadaland.com slash join. And thank you. A couple of years ago, a cop was shot dead on a deserted pier in the tiny nation of Belize. The only other person there that night was a frightened young woman found covered in blood. By all appearances, it was an open and shut case. 
but not in Belize, where this woman was connected to a mysterious billionaire who basically runs the place. Justice will not be served in this case. She's going to get away with it. Or will she? White Devil, a Campside Media original. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.